This is a Broad Pods production. You're listening to the Leahy Pipeline podcast. Welcome to this episode. Construction is much more than bricks and hammers. It's an industry for all people to work in. On this show, we sit down with changemakers to discuss the passion, the opportunities, the struggles and the changes that they're taking to bring more people, especially women, into construction. Today we meet Joe Farrell, a trailblazer in construction. Despite being told to be a hairdresser and facing scepticism as a woman on site, she's now the ACT Australian of the Year for 2024. Jo's journey challenges assumptions about the industry. She emphasises that university doesn't define you and she rejects the notion that high vis is any less than a suit. But Jo just doesn't break barriers at work. She's redefining parental schemes, advocating for work-life integration and asking us to just be better humans. Welcome to the podcast, Jo. My name is Jo Farrell and I'm the General Manager of Kane Constructions in the ACT. And I'm also the founder of not-for-profit charity organisation, Build Like a Girl. Amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Joe. It's so nice to see you and, and speak to you. Um, you're one of my favourite humans on this planet. So thank <laughs> you for, for taking the time to spend, spend this hour with me. I just wanted to start because you're an incredible human and I don't know how we're actually going to showcase how incredible you are on this podcast. But I guess I wanted to start with your story and showcase how you got into construction and the beginning of Joe Farrell in the construction industry, I guess. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about how you got into construction and share your story? I'm going to show my age straight off the bat. So (laughs) um, I finished school in 1996 and I previously tried to get work experience, um, you know, when we do it in year 10 and year 11 and, and things like that. And all the guys I went to school with uh, were going off and sort of working in the steelworks and having all those opportunities. And, and I was asking for those same opportunities. And I remember a careers advisor saying to me in school, oh, look, if you want an apprenticeship, be a hairdresser. And um, I kind of looked at them and just went, what is, what is that supposed to mean? Like, it's not what I'm talking about. But it wasn't encouraged for any of the women um, in terms of um, where I grew up and where I came from, um, you know, in Wollongong. And, and so there was always a bit, there was a, the stigma and the stereotype, which we all know still exists now, but it was very prevalent then. And so I wasn't given that same opportunity to explore those options, which I think is so important at that age. But popped out of year 12, I was a really terrible student. I, I didn't do very well at school. Um, I didn't, I didn't, past my HSC, I didn't get anywhere near it. I was one of those people that just got a little red dot because my score was so low they don't even bother to give it a number. And, look, that was from a a lot of reasons school wasn't – I wasn't able to learn in that environment very well and so people thought I was really unintelligent. As it turns out, I I later got diagnosed in my early 20s as having dyslexia, um, particularly around mathematics and numbers. And so, you know, that had never been picked up, never addressed or, or anything like that. And so I really sort of struggled and then I was really uncomfortable at school because I didn't really know who I was and, and always knew that I sort of just acted and, and behaved differently to, I guess, the other the other girls in, in my class. So it was a really hard environment. And when I when I popped out, though, I had this real drive that I, I knew I wanted to build things and, and, um, and I was just intrigued, constantly intrigued and sort of drawn to the building industry and, you know, would find myself just 
there was a building site just watching how it came together and sort of really, really interested with all the different trades that were involved. So I uh, was working at what was Hardware House at the time, which is the old version of Bunnings. And so that was a good way to start getting the feel for the materials and sort of learning all those different bits and pieces. So I was working there on nights and weekends and and also working, I think I had four jobs at the time. But then I was trying to get an apprenticeship. So I asked upwards about 150 different companies, so, wow. you know, building companies, carpentry companies, all over the greater Wollongong area. And everyone said, no, you know, we don't want girls on site. We don't like them. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You can't do the job. You don't belong here. You're a distraction, you know, all this sort of stuff. And and I just um, kept going back and kept going back and, and trying to do this. So it took a few months and then I finally, um, uh, this guy that I think somehow vaguely knew our family, I think I annoyed him to the point where he said, fine, turn up on Monday. I'm not going to pay you. And if you survive three months, then we'll think about putting on as an apprentice. And so I just said, sure, no worries. At least you're going to give me a go. So I worked for nothing, um, which I think is the definition of modern slavery nowadays. But, you know, (laughs) um, no one was interested in that sort of stuff back then. And, And look, it was hard. They really wanted to make life difficult and really kind of, I guess, prove their point that I didn't belong. But I really wanted to prove my point that I did. Um, so I survived that three months and I won't go into the gory details of what that entailed, but um, it wasn't very nice. It wasn't certainly, yeah, it wasn't a pleasant experience, but at the end of it, he eventually conceded and signed me up and I became a first year carpentry apprentice. And from then on, you know, the rest is history, I guess. Crazy. It's a crazy story that you had to work for free for three months and endure what you have just to get an apprentice like that, an apprenticeship. It is, it blows my mind. But you're just mm. such a tenacious woman that you did that and you survived it. And look at you now, like you're a GM of Kane Constructions. And I want to touch on a recent award that you've just won because I think it's incredible. You are the ACT Australian of the Year for 2024. Like, what an incredible achievement. What a journey. I just, I'm in awe of you every single day. You, you're a woman in construction, you've faced adversity you know, worked for free to get into the construction industry. You refer to yourself as just a chippy and look at you, just a chippy, winning these amazing awards, running a charity. Like how do you do it? How does Joe continue to do this? And why do you continue to do this in an industry that is, you know, rewarding but also challenging? What's the drive? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the industry, you know, 50% of the time breaks my heart. And I sort of wonder why I'm still here. And then the other 50%, I love everything about it. You know, I what drives it or what? Um, I think it's a, a number of things. I think it's probably just a seething, boiling rage of, <laughs> of things inside that I try and channel to, to something positive. And, and that's largely borne about by the stories that other women come to me and tell me about their experiences that are so similar to mine. And even though it's now almost three decades that I've been in the industry. I've had young women say, oh, I've applied for an apprenticeship, you know, through all these advertisements and told I can't get the job because I'm female and this and that and the other. So in, in all that time, in 27 years, there are still, you know, those things things happening and, and that just makes my blood boil. So I think a big part of my drive is, is probably um, redirected anger <laughs> and frustration. I think too that I'm just inherently incredibly stubborn person and if you speak to my mum I think she'll reinforce that I just don't like people telling me what I can and can't do I'll decide that myself so you know it's I don't believe that anyone should put limitations on anyone else and I think that 
we're conditioned to do that to, to women across the board in society, not just in construction. I think we just love doing the construction and constantly telling women, oh, you can't do this or can't do that. You know, after after that award announcement came out, I had some very old high school friends sort of say, do you remember that time in your year 11 physics class where the teacher called you out and said you're the dumbest person in the room because I'd failed this physics physics assignment? And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love for him to sort of see where this is now because there's been all these moments in time where, yeah, I haven't followed a traditional path of, you know, doing well at school and then getting a university degree and then sort of following that pathway maybe into engineering or construction management. That was never going to be my path, but I've still ended up running a multi-million dollar construction company with a large team. And, you know, we're working on the War Memorial, which is where I'm sitting today, which is one of the largest, most prestigious projects happening in the country at the moment. It's $110 million project for us. I mean, I just, I just think that there's too much narrative out there of just placing limitations, um, particularly on women, particularly in our industry, of saying, oh, well, if you don't do this, you can't do this. And it's like, well, let them choose. Let them choose their path. Let them choose what they can and can't do. And if they do decide, yeah, maybe I can't do this, fine, but it's their choice. And I think that's what it ultimately comes down to. And so I'm just really sick and tired of, of people putting that limitation on me, on other people, and, and I don't believe in it. And so I think that's probably the single large, largest driver and I mean, yeah, the, the Australian of the Year Award came as a huge shock. I, I don't know even as of today who nominated me, but someone out there obviously um, took the time to do that, which I'm so appreciative of, and it came as a huge shock and I sort of talked myself into the fact that I wasn't going to win. I talked my mum into the fact that I wasn't going to win so she didn't come down and so now she's really cranky with me because she didn't come to the awards because I told her I wasn't going to win. And, and so, um, you know, there was all these things. And so I was totally unprepared for it and I guess – now it's about, okay, if I've got this platform and I've, I've been given this voice, now it's about amplifying all of the other voices around me who are not being seen. So I think that's the most important part of this now. I just, I love that that's what you're going to do with your platform, with that platform. It's about amplifying everybody's voices to be heard. And that just goes to show the type of person you are, just just a humble, chippy. Um, and I love it. I love it. <laughs> just a chippy. Just a chippy. Um, <laughs> That's my favourite saying. I might actually change your name in my phone to just a chippy. Um, It's my favourite thing that you say. It's just such a humbling thing to hear. It's actually Um, my excuse for when I muck things up too, you know, so it comes in handy because I I fail daily when I do things and so I'm just like, I'm just a chippy. I'm just a chippy. (laughs) I love it. And I think you touched on something that I really want to bring up because I think it can be a big deterrent for a lot of people. You brought up the fact that you didn't go down the same path as a lot of people, which is university. And I think that is a very key element for business owners to understand that not everybody has to go through to uni to become successful. And I just would like to hear more of your thoughts on that and do you hire people just with a uni degree? Like what does that look like for you when you go down that path? I need to tread carefully with this because I do sometimes make statements that puts everybody offside that does have a university degree. So my opening statement is university is great. I, I, I have no aversion to it, but it's not the only way to learn and it doesn't define you as a successful person. Um, hilariously, a good mate of mine in Sydney studied French history and art for four years and, you know, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for this and, um, popped out the other side and has never used that degree in her life. And we sort of go, what was that about? Just like, I don't know, you know, it was just interesting. And so, you know, and there's lots and lots of, I think, examples of that where people, I, I think it's really hard to pop out as an 18 or 19-year-old straight out of school and have to make a really large decision 
that can define your career in the future. I think you're too young for that to some extent and you don't always get the right advice. So I think we push a lot of young people towards that road. I don't think we give them a proper break from having been at school already for so long and coming out of doing exams and tests and all these measurements of who you are as a person on on a piece of paper and then, oh, by the way, now you have to do another four years at university and pay 150 grand for the privilege. Like, here you go. And we somehow think that without that piece of paper, you're never going to be a success in life. I reject that wholeheartedly and I reject the stigma and stereotype around tradespeople that, um, you know, someone walking down the street in high vis and someone walking in a suit are not equal in our industry, that, that you know, the person in high vis is deemed to be less educated, you know, less intelligent, doesn't have the same skill set. Well, sorry, that's not the case. I work with people who have only spent their time on sites swinging hammers and doing manual labour who can sort out more technical and complex problems out there than someone who has looked at stuff on paper for four years. So, you know, unless you're you're supplementing university with really good work experience, really good mentorship from people who have been in industry for a long time and you're getting that broad-based knowledge, you're going to come out of university after four years with no actual lived experience, not really understanding how sites work and find it very, very difficult to deal with those people who have been there for a long time sorting out these issues long before you came along. And so there's a disconnect and there's existing and there's stereotypes that exist in our industry, as you well know, everywhere, right? But we we know, and I even remember, you know, standing out the front of building sites in, in Sydney when I was younger and having all these people in suits walk past and just look at us like we were garbage um, because we were wearing high vis and we weren't, you know, but we, I can guarantee you we're earning more money than them doing the job we were doing um, and we're no less intelligent. It's, there's just different pathways to get to where you want to get to. And, you know, as an example, Philippa Selden, who's my operations manager, my right hand on any given day, she's 200% better at this job than I am. Um, you know, so two females running this size of construction company with all the things and she runs Healthy Trading Project on the side and does all this other stuff. She doesn't have a uni- university degree either. So she came through a yacht building sort of traineeship and worked in that space and then transferred those skills into construction. And is probably one of the single best, I think, people who are so proficient in project management and financial, you know, commercial acumen. She doesn't have an accounting degree. She doesn't have an economics degree. She doesn't have any of that stuff. But hands down, I'll take her any day of the week over anyone who has that. So I I just think we need to, again, step back and sort of go, why don't we open our minds and open our doors to all of the different options and start looking at all these abilities that people might have that are being ignored because you just want them to have a piece of paper. It's just wrong. I wholeheartedly agree with that because I think in order for us to get more women in construction that have transferable skills, they're not going to have that piece of paper a lot of the time. They're not going to go down the engineering path or whatever path it is that people are acquiring but they have these amazing skills that can absolutely be used in construction. And I think employers need to start thinking outside that box and start really hiring for potential because it's the potential in somebody that's going to drive them to be the best they can be. I mean, your living proof, your potential, you had a vision, you had a dream and look at where you are. Like this is insane where you got to, you know, from someone who couldn't even – sit at school because it wasn't who you were to where you are now mm. like it's just phenomenal it's it's and I think people need to start realizing that they're more they're, people are more than just a piece of paper and we're more than just you know what we've studied it's about how much passion you have and the potential that we can we can offer and I think that's where the shift also needs to start to change 
because we're never going to get more people into construction unless we start opening our thoughts around it. Yeah, if we don't start broadening our minds to accepting that just because someone might not have on paper the full criteria that we're asking for, there's many, many other things that are going to bring to the table. And that filters down in our business. One of our female project engineers who started as a CA has now moved into a project engineer role, and that's a site-based role going out there and, and solving engineering, complex technical issues. She doesn't have an engineering degree. She's a trader like me. She's killing it, you know, because we're around her and supporting her and she's asking all the right questions. So I refuse to accept that people say it can't be done. The only way it can't be done is because you're not brave enough to actually give it a, a crack. And so. you're probably not supporting the person because anybody, yeah. you can give anybody a shot, but if you don't support that person, they're not going to succeed. I mean, that's what makes a really good team is that support. And I think it's important for both men and women in this industry to actually understand how important supporting each other is. I mean, you've gone yep. through a lot where what I see from you and what you are doing is that you refuse to let that happen to other women coming through the doors. And I think sometimes there's a barrier there with other people who think, oh, well, I had to go through it. It's just the norm. Whereas I think that's not okay. (laughs) You've got to do your time and, you know, yeah. Just because I had to go through something that was horrible and crap, like why should I let others go through it? It doesn't actually do anything for them you know like let's be supportive and I think that's where the industry also needs to start shifting their thinking is just because it was crap for me doesn't mean it has to be crap for you you know so well I think that's our obligation to be honest I think if anyone's of the mindset of going well I went through it and you should go through it too to learn I think they probably don't belong in industry I agree whether that's whoever that is (laughs) like across the gender spectrum like if you somehow feel that someone else has to suffer in the same way then sorry, but leave, you don't belong here. You know, our obligation as leaders in this space are to pave the way for the next generation and not for them to go through and to bring all that trauma and baggage with them that we have to endure. Like that's our absolute obligation and you bring as many with you as possible and you don't just bring them up underneath you, throw them forward and then hopefully one day you end up working for them. You know, I tell Taylor here all the time that she'll be my boss one day and I can't wait for that moment. Um, because that means I've done my job. So if you're only looking out for yourself and somehow think that that's the way forward, well, sorry, but you shouldn't be here. And that is why I just love the way you are, Joe. because that's that's a true leader. That's someone who actually... <laughs> because I'm so doing <laughs> But you're, it's a true leader, right? You're not thinking of yourself. You're thinking about the good of everybody else, the good of the construction industry and what we need to do to change it, and you're actively being that change, which is so important for this industry. Well, so are you, Lauren, and we've had this conversation so many times, right, is that what are we here for? What are we doing this for? And it's and I, and I have these conversations with lots of other people as well, is that it, there's a bigger picture thing here, right, in terms of when you start out in your career and, and trying to make it and trying to get to all these places and then you reach that midway point where you sort of go, oh, I know this stuff and I can start, you know, helping other people. But then you reach this sort of later stage where I think, I'm sort of in where I'm going, now's my chance to actually make massive impact, real positive impact. And don't get me wrong, like I hold everybody to a high standard. You know, don't think for a second that just because you're a woman in our business or industry, I'm not going to hold you to a high standard. You need to work hard. You need to put the hard yards in. You need to learn and grow and you need to be a better person. And so there's not this thing of, oh, every single woman's perfect in this industry. That's not the case, you know, but you will be held to the same high standards as everyone else, no matter who you are. But it's it's that obligation of going, now's our chance given where we are 
to really make that change. And so if you're not embracing that and you're not doing that, then you're not doing it right, really. And I just can't see that you can get really any satisfaction. Like the biggest satisfaction I get is seeing other women, much younger women, you know, apprentices graduating and qualifying because we've actually managed to see them through four years. Like people like Taylor who are just embracing all of these opportunities and being really brave and bold in terms of jumping into the unknown. Like that is just better than any job, better than any award. So, Joe, I want to hear a little bit about the misconceptions and the barriers well, the difference between the misconceptions in construction and then the barriers that actually exist um, to get more women into construction because there are differences and sometimes um, there are some myths about them as well. Can you talk to me a little bit about some misconceptions that aren't true um, and then some barriers that actually are, are consistent in the, in the construction industry? How much time do we have for this? <laughs> <laughs> So 27 years ago, I was told that I wouldn't be strong enough to work in the industry, that I would be a distraction to the guys on site, which was interesting theory, that, you know, all of these kind of really vague that, you know, there was no sort of real backup evidence or explanation as to those sorts of things about why that was an issue, but they were just kind of these broad statements. So in terms of, and we'll break those down because I've actually had, um, like I said, before, um, you know, some, some young women who have, you know, have tried to do the same thing as me, knocked on some doors and applied for apprenticeships that were advertised, you know, out in the open and were told the same thing. So very, very recently, young woman said, oh, you know, there was this apprenticeship advertiser, I applied for it and I was told that I wouldn't be strong enough for the role and I went, my goodness, okay. So, so if we break down the physicality stuff, you know, to start sort of step through some of these things, we, you know, in 2023, we don't work the same way as we did in 1996 or, you know, in 2010 or whatever. There has been such monumental changes in the work health and safety space around, you know, um, the physicality of the job and the strains in the industry, in, you know, injuries that have occurred because of the, um, the physical aspects of sort of weights of materials and different things. And, it is now, you know, manual handling and all of those things now dictate that you can only lift a certain weight, which is 20, 20 kilos, and there's certain ways to do stuff, right? So most women I know can generally lift 20 kilos, and even if you can't, you can ask for help because there's actually nothing wrong with asking for help. That's, that's just a human thing. So in terms of the physicality side of it, I haven't been able to identify really a single aspect of where that would really affect. And, and don't get me wrong, like you, you need a, a level of physicality to be able to walk around on sites all day and be on the move and, you know, bend over and pick up tools and hold things and everything else. So, yes, it, it's not sitting behind a desk, but nor is playing sport for a living, you know, nor is doing, being a nurse, nor is being a childcare worker picking up children all day who sometimes can weigh more than 20 kilos. Like, can attest so to that. I've kind of... I don't understand the mentality around, first and foremost, any form of you're not strong enough being a reason and a barrier for a woman to enter the industry. It doesn't exist and it's just a really nice thing for guys to say to sort of put women down in terms of, well, I'm stronger than you. That's all that is, right? That's what that statement is bailed as. So so forget that. doesn't exist and can tell you right now that there's plenty of things that I go around and do on these sites that the guys do and there's not a bat of an eyelid in terms of, what can be done and if something's too heavy I get someone else to give me a hand and we get it done so 
that's the first point. If anybody wants to challenge me on that, come and walk around on site with me and we'll have the conversation. In terms of being a distraction, I, I often wonder if, women make up sort of 51% of the population how these people get by life because if you're so distracted by 50% of the population, I'd probably wonder how you can function daily in that space. So I'm not sure why women would be more of a distraction on a work site as they would be in the supermarket and I would suggest that's more of that person's problem than our problem as women. 100% agree with that. <laughs> so I'd, I'd be very, very worried about that person <laughs> and their thought process. You know, so again, I kind of, I take that comment and kind of just like to point that out very clearly and then they can realise how stupid that statement is. But again, that is a statement that is very much trotted out there. I've had young women come to me who wear shorts on a building site that are the same length as a male's who's standing right next to them. And I've had a supervisor say, can you speak to her about her shorts? Cause you know, we sort of, we're a bit distracted. And I went, oh, oh, I'm distracted by the horrible, horrible hairy legs next to it. <laughs> They're exactly, exactly the same length that, that that's okay. And her legs aren't, can you explain to me anatomy and kind of how it works? Right. So, but these are actual conversations, Lauren, these are legitimate. I'm not making this stuff up and this is kind of probably why I'm so cranky most of the time, right? Because they don't make sense and it's this double standard, you know, so we get to a point where I've got, you know, apprentices that we've placed and um, young women because of the conditioning we place on them at a young age around how they should look, they wear eyeliner to work and mascara. I don't care. But then that gets pointed out as an issue and sometimes it gets pointed out by older females on site about it being inappropriate. What? I couldn't care less what someone comes in wearing provided it's safe and fit for purpose and it complies with our rules around PPE and, you know, high-vis and other things, wear whatever you like. I mean, if you can get away with a clown suit, go for your life. Like, you know, it's just, again, we're placing all of these weird judgmental criteria, but we place it on the women and only the women. I mean, we've got guys who, when it gets hot, Take strip their off shirts all their shirts. <laughs> Say that on construction sites all the time. And it could be that they are quite fit and active and would be considered, you know, attractive in some circles, not mine, but others. <laughs> but, you know, and then there's other people who obviously like the beers and the meat pies and the chalky milks and have a different body shape. And, and again, I don't care. That's your body. You do what you like with it. But there's a different standard then, right? There's all these layers upon layers upon layers of stigma and stereotype and bias and, um, you know, double standards and, and even triple standards in some case. And so, all of those barriers still exist. They've existed 27 years ago when I started. They exist now. And all of them are just complete rubbish, absolute rubbish. And I think it, you know, we get caught up in the judgment. We get caught up in the comparison, um, you know, and I think all of it come, boils down to there's a lot of male insecurity in this industry because, low, you know, God forbid that there's a woman who can actually do the same job, if not better, because that would just be catastrophic to their self-esteem. But that's essentially what's driving a lot of this, right, is that they just don't want that level of competition and sorry, but it's it's there and we're here and we're not going anywhere. So you're going to have to get used to it and stop talking about how short our shorts are. And I have another one that kind of irks me up the wrong way and I was having a conversation with someone in construction who's been in construction for all their life, crane driver, and he said to me, we don't want women on site because they get pregnant. 
And I thought, well, that's just as, <laughs> one, it's a genesis. Just in isolation. It just, it just happens, happens, right? Like, so it's, it's, a, it's a massive shock, you know. It just yeah, happens. so yeah. he was, a, you know, what do we do? We don't have women for, you know, she comes on, she gets pregnant, then she's off. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is a great <laughs> conversation to be in. But so I challenge that with, well, hang on a second. Yes, she's pregnant and just like in every other industry we have to um, – change a little bit of what needs to happen to ensure safety for mum and baby but in terms of her work ethic in terms of what she's doing she's still going to give it a hundred percent and yes she's going off to have a baby um, and she will take time off but what about the men why is it okay why, why can't the men take some time off isn't that a good thing that we want our men to spend the first six months with their babies or even the first three months with their baby like isn't that something we want to do don't we want to put that level of human back into this industry and say like you know he's a dad if he wants to go and pick up his kid on a Saturday he should be able to and shouldn't be looked down upon because that often happens a lot too for men so I just wanted to bring that up with you to get your thoughts on you know hiring pregnant women or women that could get pregnant (laughs) (laughs) so um I was at a uh industry event and a whole bunch of builders um, in the room and, um, and anyway, standing there, chat, chat, chat. We're talking about, you know, resources because we always whinge and moan about resources and I'm like, well, 50% of the population is standing there, but anyway. Um, and and this particular gentleman, I don't know if I should call him a gentleman, anyway, this guy turned around and went, oh, and, you know, the other part of it is women are just ticking time bombs. What? And everyone in this circle of discussion just stopped dead and just looked at me just like, oh, God, <laughs> like, say those words and and I was a bit confused because I was like what's he you know what are we what are we referring to is it like exactly with it and and I said sorry I don't understand your comment we're ticking time bombs how and he said um he said oh well you know you employ him and you spend all this time training him and and then they go off and get pregnant and then you have to start again and I said well it's not like you don't get notice (laughs) it's not like they just turn up randomly and go I'm having a baby tomorrow I'll see you later um, and, you know, I said, if you've got a good relationship with that particular individual, they generally can give you six months notice. Six months is a bloody long time in construction to work something out. Absolutely. So I feel that, <laughs> um, you know, and look, from a personal experience here, we had a bit of a baby boom post-COVID. Um, so, you know, obviously it was a bit boring at home and things were happening. And so between, you know, we've, uh, our team of mixed, mixed genders, we had, um, lots and lots of pregnancies pop up all within like a sort of month or so of each other. And we went, right, okay, we can handle this. What do we all need? Um, and there was lots of conversations where we sat down and said, right, you know, for, for, um, some people it was their first baby. And so, you know, these young guys were just totally unprepared for what they're And we're sort of sitting there going, you can't just have two weeks. Two weeks is not enough to support your partner and to also be there during this very early stage of that baby coming home and transitioning into life, okay? So you need more than two weeks. No, no, I only need two weeks. No, we're telling you right <laughs> you now. more than that. You need to take more time, right? So we were sort of having those sorts of conversations with the new parents and then, you know, the parents that already had, a child that might have been sort of toddler age or whatever it's like okay what do you need to do daycare runs what do you need to do school runs what you know because you're gonna have a new baby plus 
you know, you've got this other child there, so what do you need from us? What does work look like? So we were sitting there having individual conversations with everyone, so whether it was the mum or the dad or whatever, you know, about what does life look like leading up to this time in terms of what you need for and and you know I'm not a I'm not a mum I'm not able to have children and I don't know um you know sort of what that experience is but what I do know is there's an extraordinary amount of scans and doctor's appointments (laughs) that you have to go to Mm -hmm. which is out of this world and so I was just like wow so we just basically went look you need to go to appointment chuck it in the calendar let us know. You just run off and do what you need to do. We cover it off as a team. We have the conversation. So it was just really open. It was, you know, an environment that's supportive to go, cool, you can't get here to 8.30, 9 o'clock until daycare opens. That's fine. You know, we'll deal with that. You need to leave at 3.30 on these days or, you know, 2.30 to go and do this. That's fine. You know, there's more than enough people in this business that should be able to cover off for people when these things happen. You know, the kid's sick because they bring all these, I mean, daycare centres are petri dishes. <laughs> My God, anyone who has a child at daycare must eventually end up with the most robust immune system because the amount of sickness that those places generate for parents is out of this world. You know, so we're sort of now moving from the baby space into the daycare tradition and and we have a a very firm rule of you do not bring that into this office. Um, so if you know, even and we're now sort of if someone sneezes or coughs, we're like, get out, see you later. Just because we don't sort of want to go through it. But are we honestly saying in this day and age where we've had to navigate COVID, where we've had to navigate remote working, and and don't get me wrong, we work in a physical job, we have a presence, we have to have face to face supervision. We I know we have an on site, you know, sort of requirement. But are we actually saying in 2023 that we can't navigate around pregnancy and parenthood? Is that is that what we're saying as an industry? Because what we can't have an honest conversation with an individual about what they need and then cover that off in other ways. Yeah. We we do so many other things in so many other ways, and we're always talking about innovation and fixing everything. So how about we just fix the industry from the ground up and make it a really nice place for the guys to be? And naturally, women are going to want to work here. Absolutely. You know, like let them be parents, let them be dads, let them have their weekends, let them have their sport time with their kids, let them actually go and pick kids up and go to their events and all this stuff that they generally miss out on because they're laughed off the site if they try and do it. You know, let's start being fair and reasonable to the blokes instead of haranguing them all the side about you know, all the time about not being dads and not being present. Well, how can they be? And again, it's a double standard that's flipped the other way, right? Because no, 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 the woman, the mother's the primary caregiver because that, you know they need their mum. No, they don't. They need both. They just need someone who's invested. That's right. That's right. They need they need consistency, right? So why is it that men are being laughed off the job site or like, you know, those little remarks, uh, oh, you're starting at this time, oh, you're a bit late today or, you know, like going to pick up your kids or. Or, 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 the, or does your missus wear the pants in yeah, the relationship because you have to do. Yeah, yeah. I recall listening yeah. to someone um, talk to me about her husband who his lunchbox broke and um, the only lunchbox they had was their daughter's, which was pink. <laughs> and literally he took it to work for one day and for yeah. a year they called him pink boy. Like, I just, I just think, like, are we, is it at that level like that we have to call someone pink boy because he took a pink lunchbox because it was his daughter's? Like, really? Like, is that how? And so 
I feel bad for men sometimes as well because they are on the other yeah. side yeah. copying the brunt of it. You know, they feel guilty for going and picking up their kids or <laughs> they feel like it's not allowed and that shouldn't be the case either. We should be opening this up yeah. and making people yeah. feel that they are allowed to step off on site to go and pick up their sick children regardless of your gender. It should be something that it's a duty and for you know for me for example when i have kids or when i was pregnant i felt really awkward telling people that i was pregnant because i didn't want that stigma on me either so the women have to face this level of stigma where oh my gosh i don't want to tell them i don't want to tell them what does this look like for me and it shouldn't be the case it's one of the most happiest times in your life you should be excited to be able to say that without having that um, I guess that stigma around you of, oh my God, she's pregnant. What are we going to do? And I guess like what you were saying, Joe, you can give people six months, five months notice, and that's plenty of time to kind of sort out what that looks like. Whereas you can invest the same amount of training in someone brand new, you know, regardless of their gender, they come on board and then they decide to leave within six months and they don't give you anything but two weeks notice. To me, that's an issue. It's actually better to have someone who's pregnant because you know what's coming and you can plan it. Whereas if you invest all this time in any employee and they just up and leave, you don't really have a backup. You know, you don't have a backup plan. You have to go, you have to scramble, whereas you have time to plan these. So I think it's just around that conversation. I mean, for me, it's, it's, if you think women are a ticking time bomb and this is a major issue, like I said, you've got enough notice to, you know, like we're saying, have the conversation and everything else. So I just put it down to the fact that you're a poor manager. Yeah. And to, if you can't to deal stereotype. With it, and you just think that everyone else is the problem, exactly. right? But they're and not. And to stereotype that all women are a ticking time bomb. I mean, I'm not going out to have any more children. Like, that is not <laughs> happening. I have three, I'm done. Like, shut shop. That's it. So, like, you know, that's, that's, I'm not doing it. It's not going to happen. So you can think that it might. I'm telling you it's not. So there's women out there that might be, you know, going through that journey still and want to have kids, but there's absolutely women that don't want to have kids or that have had kids and are finished. Like there's so many different stages to, to stereotype us all as. You know, you know the trailblazer in this space though, and you know who I'm going to say it is. So um, the, the best, I had a really long conversation with Alison Myrams about this, right? And her absolute mandate is right before a woman goes on maternity leave, you promote her. Beautiful. Right? So she knows unequivocally when she comes back, not only is her employment safe, but she's actually been given, you know, a, a, a more important higher role, whichever way you want to describe it. It's a promotion. And that's a really brave, I think, step in terms Absolutely. of making a statement like that. And then the other great statement, and, again, I'm, I'm not a mum, but I've certainly dealt with some very um, headstrong nieces <laughs> that we have. Um, and Alison also said, you know, in terms of women returning to work, because that's the other side of the coin, right, is how do we transition women back into work, which is a massive, massive untapped potential, okay? How do we encourage women to come back and thrive after they've had children and to balance the obligation of being a mum and a woman and the expectation? Nobody you have works to be harder than a mum you know? returning to work. And, than a mum. Absolutely. Yeah. So... So, you know, Alison said, again, you know, if you've had to negotiate with a two-year-old <laughs> ever in your life, why would you not want that woman at your negotiating table and in the room when there's a problem, right? And it's just love because Alison construction sites are, are, just, are just very large, messy, dirty, sweary daycare centres, okay? 
at any given time when the pressure's on, we all resort to being children. <laughs> and so, you know, why do you not want the mums in the room at that point in time to sort stuff out? And and Alison just has this fantastic way. And look, she was she was never really going to have children, then sort of decided, oh, actually, and says it's the best thing I ever I ever did. But it was hard. Yeah. And, you know, she, she openly talks about that. But she said, but, you know, she now understands that. She has that lived experience and now she does everything she possibly can for, you know, for the women in Roberts Co to feel that they have that support and that, um, you know, I guess that expectation of going, we know that motherhood's a full-time job. And then you also have a full-time job. <laughs> so, you know, and, and that guilt that comes with that in terms of trying to cover off both and be the best at everything. And, and yeah, I think that can we just be a bit kinder about that and about the expectations placed and maybe just be a bit braver in this space? Maybe have the conversations with other leaders who are doing the right thing and who can maybe help you with it instead of just rejecting it outright, saying it's all too hard. Absolutely. It's, it's just conversations. It's all it takes. And you know what? I um, We went through our, uh, just this is at Narwick, we went through our annual review and one of, the, the, one of our staff members was on maternity leave I still gave her her review with her pay rise and she was blown away. She's like, but I'm on mat leave. And I'm like, and you have worked yeah. for, you know, most of the year. You've just taken maternity leave. Why wouldn't you get your pay rise? I don't understand why you think that that wouldn't happen. And her response was, it just never, you know, it's just not how it doesn't. It, it doesn't. doesn't. It doesn't. You know, it's not a thing. But, yeah. And why not? Like she's not gone. She's still in the business. Yes, she's not working for a period of time, but she still worked six months of that year or, you know, more to deserve that pay rise, then absolutely she should get it. Um, so I think we need to just start thinking about that because that also is how the gender pay gap starts to to form within these absolutely. industries, right? Absolutely. We don't pay. And I know anyone. that's a big, a big thing for you because you're a mum and, have your three beautiful daughters and I know that it's a big, this is a big thing for you to sort of wave the flag on and, and rightly so. And I think, you know, you undersell yourself so much, Lauren, in terms of going, oh, I don't do much, you know, this and that and the other. But those those acts of bravery, and it's not an act of kindness, that's a different thing because kindness will be doing it just because you think, oh, well, you know, it would almost be from a pity perspective or from a, this is not that. This is an act of bravery to go, this is what I'm going to do. Because hopefully then that person remembers that and then they do it for someone else and that's the flow and effect, right? And you always discount yourself in that space of making those real those real acts of bravery that other people are too scared to make. So don't don't discredit or discount the impact you have with that. That's a huge brave impact that other people need to take on board and perhaps be a little bit better in that space and, and understand that. Because yeah, absolutely, gender pay gap, I mean The flow and effect from the gender pay gap, and you and I have had this conversation many times, flows into then women who then exit the workforce or are forced out of the workforce, maybe from, you know, other factors, environmental factors, domestic violence factors, other things. They don't have superannuation. They don't have, you know, the setup later in life that our male counterparts do because they haven't been penalised in that way throughout the life cycle of having to be a female and having to juggle motherhood and all of those things. So, you know, the biggest um, contingent and cohort of homeless people are Mm -hmm. older women. So, you know, and what you're telling me that that doesn't start back where we're having this conversation now? Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. If women are not earning the same amount as men, they're not earning the same amount of super, they're not given the same amount of, you know, um, help and assistance and support that men are in terms of later in life when they're retiring. And therefore we're seeing huge amounts of older women who 
have absolutely been employed during their life but have had all these other factors imposed on them because of our society and our structure and also the way our industry is set up. And they pop out the other side and potentially end up at the age of 70 living in their car or worse. It's just horrible. It, It starts now. Those brave conversations you're having, that has an impact. Whether you want to admit it or not, because I know you're too bloody humble, but it has an impact, right? But it, it needs to be braver. It needs to be bolder. We need other people to do that. Because if you can't see the effect down the down the line, then, you know, again, open your eyes. That's right. And and this is a, especially for the big businesses, all businesses, is to have a look at that and make sure that, you know, credit is given where credit's due. And if someone's due for a pay rise, regardless if they're on maternity leave, for both men and women, right? Because now paid parental leave is, is an option for men. You still would give that person a pay rise. Like We should be looking at that as just the norm. It shouldn't be oh, that person's not here, so they're out of sight, out of mind. It should not work like that. It should just work. This is the norm. They are an employee. This is how it works. And I think we we just need to keep going with that and need to think of it as these are our employees. You wouldn't stop giving somebody a pay rise if they're on annual leave for three months. So they've taken a holiday. Oh, we're not going to give them a pay rise because they're on a holiday. Well, there's no difference in being on paternity leave at all. Um, it's the same. I thing. don't think it's a holiday though. Yeah. <laughs> That's the difference, right? <laughs> Parental leave is going from one crazy job to a full-time hard job. Like, Isn't, isn't that the uh, other um, annoying thing for you to hear when you come back from maternity leave and someone says, how's, how's your break? break? What break? <laughs> what break? Uh, this is a break. Coming to work is a break. Seeing humans <laughs> is a break. Not dealing with diet like nappies and, you know, poo explosions all day that you know like that part of my life I'm so glad it's over (laughs) I loved it but so glad but you know coming back to work is really what drives a lot of women because we are able to have those human conversations rather than these little dealing with these two-year-olds all day and that's the huge thing you know you think you're going to lose your mind because two-year-olds mm. do not let up, you know, you become a really good negotiator. <laughs> you just have to. So, Joe, I um, I wanted to kind of wrap it up and I have two further questions for you. So I wanted to ask you what kind of things do you think that government can be doing for women in construction? Yeah, so there's some good conversations happening at the moment. I've, I've had conversations with state-based and, and um, Department of Education and Workplace Relations um, who are Sam and Trish and a few others are very much on the women in construction. Certainly they're interested and invested in this space and understanding that maybe from a federal level there's not enough attention being paid to it. We know there's a white paper out from a federal level saying, yep, this is one of our things that we're focusing on. I think where government they are now actively getting out and having conversations with industry and and trying to get as much information and really broad information, Um, you know, not just my perspective but many perspectives. I'm I'm not always, you know, I get up on the soapbox. It doesn't mean I'm always right um, about things. But um, I think they're really actually starting to sort of go, we've got a part to play but, you know, what is that part? And we we need industry to tell us exactly what that is. And I think it's sort of a, a multi-pronged attack where government will always find funding, but we need to come up with the strategy as an industry. And I don't think it's fair to sort of point at them and go, well, you need to fix this. I don't think that's correct. I think as an industry, we need to acknowledge that we're not being better. We sit there and whinge and moan day in, day out about all the problems around skill shortages and, you know, all of these other issues that are happening. But then we go, oh, yeah, but the problem's too big. Can't do anything about it. 
So that paralysis and that complacency sets in and then we just talk about it all again next year and next year and next year and 27 years later you end up where I am. You know, so what I've said to, to government is if we came to you with a holistic national strategy of how to get 8,000 female apprentices a year signed up per year, 8,000 a year Amazing. so you start seeing big ways, big ways of change, you know. Um, to be able to start plugging this skills gap that we're saying we need 500,000 workers, you know, by, by 20, sort of 27 or whatever it is. Um, I, I suppose it's conversation around, you know, who do we need, what trades do we need, what, you know, what other roles do we need to fill that start breaking that down into really kind of manageable chunks of going, well, you know, this trade sector, like plumbing has a huge issue, commercial plumbing has an issue, let's break it down into the different areas, break it down to trades, let's talk about licensing, let's bring quality into it quality discussion because at the moment the hot topic particularly in your neck of the woods with the safety commissioner is around lack of quality in construction well you have a lack of quality because you have a lack of good training and licensing so state by state it differs i can open a roofing company here in canberra tomorrow without a license but i'd be a really crappy roofer let me tell you but i could do it and no one about an eyelid so you know state by state there's no national framework for licensing and i think that's a really great place to start because that also then means that we can start actually tracing all of the other trades that aren't licensed, that aren't actual apprenticeships. And we can start picking up maybe where some of these other women might be and where other these gaps might be. So we can't actually get proper statistics because we don't know where all of, all of them are unless they're actually enrolled in an apprenticeship. And not every trade role is an indentured apprenticeship. Yep, correct. So, and, and then you start to get the variations between the states and territories and then you lose it all. So that's why we always land on this less than 2% number when we talk about women in trades. We don't know what the number is. No one's ever done the work to find out and there's not a framework or government structure in place to track it. So first and foremost, bring back mandatory licensing and training for every single trade role. Big piece of work, huge piece of work, but do it. It needs to be done. Then you start training people properly. The training organisations will love it because they get shitloads of funding and then all of a sudden we start seeing people actually enrolled and we can start to track them and trace them then we can start to plug this issue of, you know, the dropout rates and other things. But that's got to be the place to start and start subsidising people who are vulnerable and coming from backgrounds in terms of if they're mature age or they're neurodiverse, Indigenous space, disability space, start opening the door to everybody. Absolutely. Because I can tell you right now that those people want to work and they want to work in our industry and we shut the door. We slam the door more on them than we do on just women in general. So let's sort of, you know, broaden our minds in terms of that. So government, give us some subsidisation so everyone's on an even playing field in terms of employment wages and things like that for the employer side of things. So they're not then having to fork out more money for someone that might come from a slightly different pathway but should still be given the same opportunity. Exactly. So I think that's where I see their space in terms of mandating training pathways and licensing pathways and us being able to track. I think industry absolutely has to play the part in terms of employers and where they sit and what they should be doing. And so I also think that training organisations need to step it up because I don't think, and again, probably get some criticism for this, but I don't think they're doing enough in that space. I think, again, they get complacent and go, the problem's too big, it's too hard, it's not our problem. It is your problem. It is your problem. You're responsible for training them. You're responsible for encouraging them into a safe training environment. So absolutely there's an onus there. And then, you you know, you have then... Organisations, um, you know, NARWIC, um, Empowered Women in Trades, Trades Women Australia F- um, Foundation, um, you know, Busy Sisters, I could name all of them, you know, everywhere, but it's it's that thing of going, well, they have a part to play. You know, we all have this intrinsic part. So I think government, 
absolutely. Let's come to you with a strategy. Let's tell you how this needs to be set up and then you make it happen and then we all fall into line and do our bit and, you know, we all do the heavy lifting together, not just individually. If we have that conversation, if there's a clear plan and strategy, absolutely, we can make huge, huge waves into this percentage. Agree. And I think um, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about like the industry has a huge part. The culture is not going to change because of government. The culture is going to change within the industry. And that's absolutely on the industry to change that culture because government can enforce a lot of things, but the culture, that stigma, that, you know, the way that people think about construction isn't going to change unless the people in construction are going to change that. And that's a huge change and a huge cultural shift that's needed. Um, So I absolutely agree. And I think it's a really great place to start. Um, And so my last question for you, Joe, is just around what you think is needed to change the culture, to make it safer, happier, um, and to remove this stigma that is in construction? You're giving me this question with three minutes to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, it, I mean, I would start off by saying when you get out of bed in the morning and walk onto a construction site, just be better, right? And that's a pretty general statement, but it, that's all it takes. It's just... You know, we, we talk about here in, in our business about as long as you come to work and just try and be a better human, not a better CA, not a better sign manager, just a better human, you are intrinsically just going to be better at your job and you're going to contribute more positively, yeah? And so I think that our, our issue with discussing culture is, you know, we say it's this huge issue, it's this huge problem, it's everything else, and so we then just go, well, I can't change it. It's, it's so bad, I can't change it. It's actually not. The, the bad part of the industry is a certain part of industry with a certain select group of individuals who, for whatever reason, born out of their own insecurities and deficiencies, want to make it a pretty crap place to work. The other sort of, eight, I'll say 80% of us, and I'll be optimistic, are actually trying to just turn up and, and be decent humans and to try and make the place better, try and make it safer, try and do better work, try and be better to each other, all those sorts of things. So I think that... If we start, if we keep talking about it as this massive, massive problem, I think we start to sort of get scared about how we can address it. At the end of the day, it comes down to the personal choice about how you're going to interact with people and the things you're going to do. Um, highly recommend every person in construction reads The Upstander Leader by um, Jessica Hickman um, around when you see something or someone says something, you speak out, right? And I think at the moment that construction is very heavy with bystanders when that small vocal contingent of people who want to make it a toxic workplace the rest of us stand by and let that happen if you're willing to actually speak up and say hey don't agree with that don't think it's relevant don't think it's appropriate be better just call it out it's really simple and if we all start doing that and we all start doing that together i can tell you right now things start to change really rapidly absolutely they will. really really rapidly because we actually band together and so I don't actually think it's a problem that's unsolvable. I think it's completely fixable. It just means you've got to be a better human being and that's not that big of an ask sometimes. So, um, you know, start with the small steps and, and let's just fix it. Let's just fix it finally after 27 years, please. Fix <laughs> be <it>. a bloody <laughs> better human, right? Like Be a better that's human. That's it. That's all it comes down to. Just be a that's decent all. human. 
That's it. Correct. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. I've had the best time chatting with you as I always do. Um, But I just want to thank you again for taking the time to spend this with me um, and join us for our podcast. So thank you so much, Joe. Well, you know how highly I think of you and how much I respect you, Lauren, and you've done amazing things at Narwick as the general manager and I'll just keep doing it because I'm right on my job. So thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leaky Pipeline. Let us know your thoughts about this episode or leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to share us with your friends and to find out more about Narwick, head to our website at narwick.com.au. Thank you.